Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel. A lot of Washington adjacent news this last week, and we'll we'll get to some of that. Um, I, I but, love I love the phrase adjacent. Washington adjacent, related to of, but not directly affecting. It's been a yeah, been a bit of a bit of a slow week for Washington itself. The one bit of news, though, Danny, and and maybe you saw this, and and if not, I'm I hate to break it to you right now, but the the South Dakota pipeline is is no more. I saw that. I saw he bailed. Yeah, which I think was coming. Um, and it's it, it for for those who are unfamiliar, Lincoln Keenholz, Washington's quarterback commitment in the 2023 recruiting class, did ultimately flip to Ohio State, which was a move long in the making. The Buckeyes had started pushing for him pretty hard after they lost their quarterback, uh, who flipped to Florida State. And um, I got to imagine very frustrating for Washington's coaching staff. He was somebody who they were on early, and like if you remember when he committed, his top four schools were Washington, Wyoming, North Dakota State, and Wisconsin. So uh, he was someone they were excited about. I think before he kind of shot up the rankings, he was only a three-star back then. I think now he's a top 200 guy. He's a four-star, and um, Ohio State took notice. So I think it, it's the it's the ultimate frustration of you identified the guy, you had the you had kind of the geographical connection because of your head coach and and coaching staff, and you know they developed that relationship. They got him got him out on a visit in the summer, got him to commit back then, and. Um, it, it doesn't end up paying off for them in the end. So does it the, matter the tw- as much in in you know, tr- in transfer portal world? Does it matter as much? It certainly matters less, uh, and that, that's kind of the question, right? Like the the twenty twenty three season is taken care of as far as your starter Michael mm-hmm. Penix Jr. is is coming back. Beyond that, it's a big question mark. Um, do you keep both Sam Heward and Dylan Morris on the roster? Does does one of those guys or both of those guys look to transfer? You have EJ Kaminong from Garfield committed in the 2024 class, but how long before he might compete for a job? So now you're looking, you know, I think Keenholz was a good enough athlete that they could have expected him to at least compete for the job in 2024 as a redshirt freshman. Um, so plans have changed. You might, you might see them have to go back in the portal. Does, have you heard anything about either of the quarterbacks that you just mentioned, Heward or Morris? Uh, potentially moving on I haven't I'd like to talk to both those guys um, Washington's been pretty good about making them available even though you know they're they're backup some schools wouldn't do that but um, I you know I don't know that Dylan Morris is in a hurry to leave the University of Washington he's always kind of had the vibe of you know he's the local kid grew up rooting for him was you know thrilled to be able to play there and you know he, he's one where I don't know that being the backup for for his career is would be the worst thing in the world. And also, he's probably looking at the depth chart and thinking, well, you know, Penix has one more year. I've got two more years. You know, maybe he figures he might be able, you know, he, he might be in that conversation um, after 2023. Who knows? Sam Heward, it's, it's a little bit different just because you would assume his expectation coming in was a little bit greater, right? That this is a five-star guy and the legacy and everything. And, you know, he probably would have thought he'd be on the field, if not by now, then maybe next year. And obviously that's not going to happen barring, you know, some some health concerns. So um, I, I'm curious to see how he would answer those sort of questions. You know, again, he also a kid who grew up loving the University of Washington. And, you know, there's a reason that, 
he went there when he was a, a five-star guy who you know could have drawn out his recruitment and and gone on you know all these visits and, and done the whole circuit but chose not to so um you know eventually get, kids want to play right and if he doesn't see a path to to doing that at washington I, I wouldn't be surprised to see him look around but i've not heard anything to indicate that either of those guys are like imminently looking to leave college coaches are so greedy when it comes to talent and and development of players and and I think that's probably why I don't get concerned about Lincoln Keenholz flipping or kind of the the overall who's the quarterback in this class because coaches want to have like they want to have it both ways they want to have their pipeline of at least one top tier quarterback recruit in each class right like you, they they talk about it that way in which this is the quarterback for this class and then once they stack them up, it's like, well, we'll see who competes to win it. So there's this this sort of cake and eat it too reality that goes on. And and I just I think coaches are control freaks who want who want to have it both ways. I look at Washington and they're not gonna have a hard time if they do wind up with a need for a quarterback, getting a quarterback to transfer in here. And if some guys decide to leave because they're not playing on the schedule they wanted, I, I wish them well. Like I, I, I hope that the kid chooses what ends up being best for them. And if if it's a scenario where like, hey, I, I believe in waiting sorry, I'll wait for my opportunity to come here and, and, and I believe it'll come around and if it doesn't, like I'm gonna make I'm gonna have a great experience. Great. If it's hey, you know what, I've waited two years, I still don't see a path onto the field, I wanna go somewhere that I've got a chance to play in twenty twenty three, like go for it, man. Like that's I, I I think that's the only healthy way to look at it as a college football fan because anything else, you're you're basically wanting the best of both worlds, which is I want my line of machine-ready quarterbacks that each each one's ready to play, but then I want the luxury of picking between them. And that's not really how the world works. And if one or two of them really don't develop the way that I thought they would, I... I want to gently nudge them out the door. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like get to step in. It's such a it's such a funny process and I I think I think quarterback is the position where we're going to see the most change. Like inevitably you're going to notice it most because people pay attention to the quarterbacks, but it's it's a position I think you're going to see more and more guys that rotate around. I I I think you're going to see more and more quarterbacks that start at two and maybe even three schools. Is, is is JT Daniels is is he he's not on his fourth yet? It's just his third, right? Uh, his it, it'll be his fourth school. Yes. <laughs> See, like that's that's a dude that came in there looking like Johnny Depp in Pirates of the Caribbean when he was the 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 freshman at USC. But think about how that's bounced around, and I don't I don't have anything. So I don't see anything wrong with the path he's chosen, but it is a, a different path. I do wonder how many kids will end up moving around and never really finding a place but that's kind of just the reality of how this situation is going to play out is you're going to see guys like that the you know the other question is what do they do this year because i think they were you know pretty set on having potentially four scholarship quarterbacks on the roster which i think everybody wants if you can do it it's a lot harder to do that now for all the reasons you just laid out 
Um, do you? I mean, do you feel equally comfortable rolling with with Penix, Morris, and Heward if those two guys do stick around? Because I mean, that's that was their situation this year, and they added a couple of walk ons. It's great I mean, if that for happens, some right? Emergency depth, but yeah, I yeah. Be- I mean, it'd be it would be something to for them to get through two years in a row with only three scholarship guys, though. Yes. I think the worry is what happens if one or both of those guys leave, right? Like that's that's the concern you would have, uh, as opposed to can you can you make it through with only those those three three guys? I think they're act I think they're fine. And I, I'm not I'm not as I'm not as worried about that. Um if Penix gets hurt, you've got you should have at least one and maybe two established backups and the 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 real danger is down the pipeline when you end up in a situation like Oregon's been in a couple times where they've really not had a quarterback, especially the year that I mean they basically needed to get Vernon Adams in there, and I think I think Kalen DeBoer just put up like this past season is is as close as you can have to a guarantee that if you do have a situation where you don't have a quarterback, you're going to have four or five guys beating down your door saying, "Let me come here and play for that year." That's the that's the issue with losing. I mean, yeah, because a, a high school signee is is depth, right? When they when they first come in, like mm-hmm. it's the very rare guy who you're expecting to actually compete for the job as a freshman. So, when it's depth that you lose, when it's your your current recruiting cycle guy who you lose, the portal options are going to be like what a younger G five type of guy who maybe hasn't been a starter before. Because anybody going in the portal with any starting experience is looking to start wherever they go next. So Penix coming back basically, you know, prevents you from being able to add anybody who has starting experience. So like you're limited to this pool of guys in the portal and I don't I don't even know how many there are who are just leaving their school cuz it's, you know, they've been a backup and they just they just need to change the scenery. So you're you'd be targeting like, you know, someone who was a true freshman or a redshirt freshman who's got like multiple years of eligibility left and that's a limited pool. If you want to replace them in your high school class, like everyone's committed and you'd kind of almost force yourself into a situation where you'd be taking a guy just to take him. So like they they offered that Sam Levitt kid from uh, West Lynn, Oregon. He'd been committed to Washington State for a while. He decommitted and wound up committing to Michigan State. I don't think Washington was was ever really in it. But, you know, they've they've explored some options there. It kind of feels like unless they do find that perfect match in the portal, they they might just roll into next year with – with three and you know the, the the flip side of of kids flipping and you know the, the 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 big bad you know blue bloods coming in and and snagging a guy who you did all the evaluation on and all those sort of things is if it doesn't work out you know that's why you keep uh that's why you keep relationships positive and lines of communication open because you never know yeah the odds that lincoln keenholz plays his entire college career at ohio state 30 percent and and I have not seen a lick of that kid play football. I, I, I am going strictly on the prestige of that school, the competition for for spots there, what we've seen with other guys. I mean, Joe Burrow ended up the number one overall draft picked in the NFL draft, who looks to be one of the I don't want to say once in a decade, but maybe once in a decade kind of quarterback prospects. Like, he looks mm-hmm. awesome. He he transferred. He transferred because he couldn't get on the field. And you kind of understand why, because because the, the guy that was in front of him was, was also a first-round pick. Like, 
the, yeah, who's the, who's lining up across from Washington on December 29th? Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh. He was the number one player in his class. Yours, Mr. Yeah. Mullet? Yeah. Ohio State transfer. Would Does his haircut give you pause? Because it does for me. <laughs> I don't think I've studied it enough to have you an haven't? opinion. You haven't? No. I know I mean I'm aware I'm aware of it generally. Yeah. So I've watched a fair amount of Texas this year. And and I, he's, I got, he's got it going for sure, yeah. I, I like yours. But like there is a certain when you look at him, I am not like that is the number one quarterback recruit of this. Like he's gonna be the best quarterback prospect out of it. I'm like, dude. That dude likes to get after it. Like that's what I think when I see it, and he, and he kind of plays that way in terms of like he's a tough kid. He takes hits, and there's there's a little bit of good old boy in him. It is not, uh, and and it, I'm making it sound like I don't like him. I love the way he plays, but like he plays like his haircut. <laughs> he, well, he's very you know. These these guys got to be very brand conscious, right? And it, <laughs> no. it fits the whole <laughs> no, it's dude, the whole you're, image. You're not brand conscious if you've got that haircut. You're not. You're I you're anti brand conscious. No, I think the opposite is true. I think he knows what his brand is. Really, he's Quinn Ewers, baby. He thinks that he's yeah. party in the front or uh, business up front and party in the back. Yeah. No, man. That's a, a that's a YOLO haircut. Too. That dude's YOLO. <laughs> I'm telling you right now, he he's YOLO. Didn't he graduate from high school early so he could make NIL money faster? Sure, good good move for him. I'll bet there's yeah, hunting so I'm, pictures I'm, of him. I'm saying he's got the he's he's business minded. <laughs> no. no, cash rules everything around me, Danny. No, you watch him. I mean, he may get the cream, he may get the dollar dollar bills, y'all. But but there is there is that is a Gardner Minshew personality. Like that's that's what that and and I love it. I love players. You that gotta are like love that. it. You gotta love it. Yeah, it's fun, but it is. And and you watch the last thing that dude does in the way he plays football is make business decisions. Like he takes hits. He is a tough dude. I can guarantee his teammates love him. Like absolutely love him because of how freaking tough he is, and he doesn't shy away from hits. And, and he's getting out there. But that is, it is not a style that lends itself toward longevity. Well, we'll see. I think he's forward thinking. <laughs> I think he knows. I think he knows the image he he wants to cultivate, and and he's got it. <laughs> he's he, he's funny. How long do you think before Sark? Oh well, I don't want to. I don't want to segue us. Are we? Do we have more Washington adjacent news? I mean, there's a, there's a bunch, but Sark is always Washington adjacent. How long before Sark feels heat? He probably starts feeling it this offseason, right? You know, I, I've i been a little bit surprised. Um, from the Texas coverage that I've read, I don't know that like anyone realistically expected them to win more than eight or nine games this year. So I, I don't think like eight and four is going to have people really coming after him. Now, if they go out in the Alamo Bowl and get blown out by Washington, maybe that changes things, although they've got reportedly a number of guys who aren't going to play in that game. Mm-hmm. Um you know, I, I think next year kind of has to be the year, right? Like you have the n- former number one recruit coming back. It'll be his second year as, as your starter. Um, they've recruited. I mean, you, you look at, you know, I, I know 
star rankings only tell you so much and blah, blah, blah. But you look at the 24-7 talent composite, and they've got like 55-plus blue-chip recruits. And they're going to do damage in the transfer portal. And you know you know that Steve Sarkeesian is going to be aggressive flipping that roster to get to where he wants it. And they already, you know, they, they weren't getting blown out in their losses this year. Right? Like, that was kind of the, the Sark special when he was at Washington. You could just kind of expect that one or two or maybe three times a year, they were going to just no-show. Mm-hmm. And their defense, was not, in particular, was not going to give them any chance. That's not that's not the situation they've got going. So, like, I, I think there's probably some disappointment. Like, you're Texas and you're 8-4, and four, and there are always going to be Texas fans who just don't think that should ever be the case. And, like, I think that's a reasonable belief based on their resources and their advantages. I don't know that, that he's to the point yet where the offseason is going to be, like, really uncomfortable for him. I, th- I think you're probably looking at next year as, as being pretty pivotal that way. I, I guess I should have phrased it differently. Do you think he's going to have to win double-digit games next year to keep his job? Because hmm. I, I, I think you're looking at that possibility. Um, I, I think, and that is, Texas, on the one hand, is a great job. You have a massive amount of resources, and you do recruit, like your recruiting profile and the guys that you get and the way kids in that state that is so loaded with football talent feel about Texas is is huge. On the other hand, there is no school in the country whose sort of reputation or the way its alumni feel about it is as disconnected from their real-world results as the Texas Longhorns. Like that alumni really believes that that should be one of the three or four blue blood programs in the country. And you just look at how often they win their freaking conference, which is not nearly as often as the other teams that get included in that conversation. It's disconnected from reality and it makes it, it it makes it a really tough job. Yeah. That's going to be a lot easier though in the SEC. So they they do play at Alabama next year. That's they they return that they return that trip. Which that they, they, they would I mean they should have won that Alabama <clears throat> game. They, yeah, they should have they should have beat them this year. Their defense played awesome that game. So and then they also have Rice and Wyoming. So I mean, <laughs> going to Alabama in week two and saying this coach has got to win double digit games this year like that's a that's yep. a razor thin margin for error. Yes, it is. Um. They could always do it again. Like they were, I think they were in every game this year, right? And they lost to TCU by a touchdown, Alabama by a point. Uh, they lost to Texas Tech. That was their only kind of like bad loss. Um, although it's, you know Texas Tech wasn't a bad team. Yeah, I I don't know. I I could always. I mean, no decision that Texas ever makes or no ambition that Texas ever has would would surprise me. Uh, so I, I could I could see it going either way. I don't get the sense that people are particularly disappointed with their their result this year. But you know, obviously, I'm not as as plugged in over there as as I am at uh, at Washington. It, it I'm interested to see how they fare. Um, I think they're going to be leaning on some young guys in this game, and you know, they're going up against a defense where it's you know not exactly the the '85 Bears coming at them so <laughs> it's it's been a bad year for defense for seattle's football teams the seahawks and the and the huskies are both fairly putrid i root for sark like i i i'm, I'm hoping he succeeds in texas do you, 
do you think that most Husky fans feel like I do, or do you think there is, I don't know whether it's resentment or sort of indifference or even, like, yeah, how, how do you think most, most Husky fans regard Sark? Um, I think people have moved on from, you know, wishing him ill, those who those who did. You know, his exit was, like, if, if you zoom out and just say Washington's coach who has, like, really deep USC ties left for the USC job, mm-hmm. you'd say, well, yeah, of course he did, you know? You don't like to think, I know, of, of Washington as being a non-destination or a stepping stone, but, like, he came up under Pete Carroll, USC was his dream job, he was always going to leave for USC if it was there. Um, I think the the manner of his departure was a little bit messy. You heard some stories of, you know, the the last team meeting and him him, him leaving in his car, you know, after telling guys he was going to stick around and, and answer their questions or whatever. And, you know, he he was on the radio that morning with, with Mitch Levy and, and basically lied about having had contact with USC. And he wound up apologizing for that, actually. Mitch, so still was, ha- Mitch still hasn't gotten over it. He mentioned it to me this week. <clears throat> really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I could see that. See, like it's funny, like and because I, I, I understand Mitch's point is like, hey, like you come on and we have a relationship, and Mitch does a great job of building relationships. Like I always look at those things of like that's the game be the game. <laughs> like, yeah, so I just don't. Like, I just, that, that's just how it goes. That that isn't personal. That's just the game. If you're in a position where you can't tell the truth, you're not going <laughs> to tell kind the of truth. What it, I don't even consider it a lie, even though it is a bald-faced lie. Like, I was just like, yeah, no, that's that's just how that goes. It's very funny. Like, I I, com- I have so little expectation of the truth from college coaches in those situations that I don't even consider that a full-fledged lie. Because I'm like, yeah, we pretty much knew you were lying. I think the fact that they hired Chris Peterson and they were in a playoff semifinal three years later was... Uh, Dude, Washington lucked out. They didn't have to pay his severance. Like, I, if they, you weren't going to fire him after he won that Apple Cup, but I, I was done with Sarkeesian that year. Like, yeah, I he was, wasn't exactly in the comfort zone. I was done with him. And, and some of that is like, you knew, I think everybody in Seattle media, I think it was generally understood that Sark went out, like that that he he drank. I mean, I think everybody knew he drank tequila, um, and there was I had I had really settled to the conclusion of like there's a level of disorganization at that program, and he's never going to get him over the hump. Because how many times did they have games where you're like, okay, this is the one where they could make a statement, this is the one that they could get, and usually it was against Oregon, and they always just got their doors blown off, like his. His signature win was year one against USC, right? When he beat Pete Carroll, like that 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 was that was the highway. That was the best win he had in his entire. I was I was overjoyed when he left, and I think some of it's the changes that he's he's gone through, and some of it's the fact that I think that Washington's so clearly upgraded. And how often, when you're Washington? Do you not have to pay to fire a coach and get an improved coach? Like that was, good God! I wish that would happen with basketball. Like, would somebody please anyone hire Hopkins? Like, someone please, for the love of God! Like, he's too expensive to fire at this point. Yeah, the- sorry, that was that was unrelated. <laughs> good God, they lost to Cal Poly Amorous, right? Well, and and Cal Baptist. 
Cal Baptist. What that was the the most most recent one was Cal Poly. Yeah, they're they're on a they're on a losing tour of the uh, the the Cal adjective schools. Um, adjective Is there modifier. Cal? Yeah, modifier. Yeah, the Cal Cal modifier. There you go. That's 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 what we'll. If call they're them. losing to modified cows. <laughs> modified cows. Modified Cal doesn't get a paycheck from UCLA, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, I saw that the Regents. Nobody held out any hope that that was going to change, though, right? We knew UCLA was gone. No, that was a very, uh, very unlikely outcome. Although Cal getting a yeah, Cal getting a little subsidy. That's yeah. good news for them, I guess. Yeah. Whatever. Uh, yeah, I, I, I would ask to those who are, um, you know, who who hear Steve Sarkeesian's name and think, eh, you know, I would just ask, like, what what do you have to be upset with him for now? You know, it's been nine years, and I I answered this in a mailbag question a couple weeks ago. Um, you immediately upgraded, right? And, and like, there were a number of players he recruited who were very crucial to that playoff team in 2016, mm-hmm. and it's it's been said by by many people that uh, you know Peterson Peterson never had a, a more talented roster than it was a uh, when, when it was a mix of the Sark holdovers and some of those early Peterson recruiting classes. So, you know, he, he brought a lot of talent into the program. They underachieved when he was there. Um, he started to sort of get the defense pointed back in the right direction his last couple of years, but they were never really close to beating Oregon. His his programs were were um, were deeply flawed. You know, yes. as as far as evaluating when is this when is this school going to be one that wins another conference championship? So, I don't think he was ever going to do it. I think that his uh, the timing of his departure was pretty much perfect because it coincided with Chris Peterson starting to look around and think like, hmm, well, is this Boise thing what I want to do forever, or do I need to change the scenery? And I think the stars kind of aligned. And now, like you said, he's he's made a lot of changes in his life and seems to be in a lot healthier place and. He's got one of the premier jobs in college football again. So, uh, you know, I think um, I would I would suggest to let bygones be bygones and, you know, enjoy the game. And, you know, certainly certainly uh, everyone's going to want to beat him on the 29th. But, yeah, I don't I don't see any reason for there to be any like lingering resentment, really. There is. And I, I would say that this gets to the usually when you have a former coach, you treat it like you do most relationships that end, which is sometimes you hate the guy. Like I don't like Tyrone Willingham. I will never like Tyrone Willingham. Like I will, I will have a very personal grudge against him, but, but even in the situations where it's not like that, and it's just like, Oh, like this was a go your separate ways sort of thing of like, he had different vision for his career. Washington was better off for it. Like it was, this was not a situation where Washington, the University of Washington can feel like it got dumped because it immediately got a better coach. But usually you don't want that other coach to ever be happier than you are. Like you never like you're like, ah, even when you like the guy and like, hey, I wish him well, like you're like, I don't want you to end up being happier. Like Philadelphia Eagles fans right now are like they like Andy Reid and having his success, but they don't want Andy Reid to end up being more successful with the Chiefs than the than the Eagles wind up after him. And it's a little bit different with Sark. And I and the reason it is for me is because I know that that would not have happened. Like any success he has now would not have happened if he'd stayed at Washington. 
Like that wasn't, that's not the path that it was like, there was too much other stuff going on. There was too much, like just the reality of who Steve Sarkeesian was at that point made it impossible that he was going to, even if he takes Texas to a national championship, I'm not going to think, oh, I wish that would have happened at Washington because it just wasn't capable. It wasn't in the cards based entirely on who Steve was at that point. So is, uh, is Sacramento state going to win the breakup with Troy Taylor? (laughs) How about this? Colorado, Arizona State fire their coach. David Shaw steps down. So there's three openings in the Pac-12, and they are filled by Deion Sanders, Kenny Dillingham, and Troy Taylor. What kind of odds could you have gotten on that parlay? It's incredible. I don't know much about Troy Taylor. That is a weird hire. Like that's a so, re- It's a really weird hire. When I saw that they were talking to him and Jason Garrett, I thought, oh, Troy Taylor is the much better hire. I, so I know no a little way. bit about him. Really? I thought the I, exact yeah. opposite. I th- I, well, you know what you, I thought? You were, on the, you were on the Greg Roman train. Yeah, I liked Roman. Here's the other thing I thought. I thought, I thought the only reason Troy Taylor's name was still in there is because he was trying to get a rub off of being considered for that that coaching job like the that the other actual candidates they had had bowed out because they knew that once they were talking to Garrett that Garrett was going to get it like I thought I thought Troy Taylor was sort of the the parsley that was left on the plate where he's like yeah I, this is this is good for me to still be listed as a candidate because usually when a team narrows when a school narrows down all of the actual candidates withdraw right like once they realize like oh I'm not getting this job they bail I thought Troy Taylor had volunteered to leave himself on the plate and then when they hired him I was like holy they hired him so you thought he was a better hire than Garrett what uh what would you have listed as out out as the pros of Jason Garrett like why why Jason Garrett Garrett's a really good administrator, had shown an ability to deal with a really high-pressure situation without ever losing his cool. Like that dude, there is nothing he is going to face as a college head coach that is going to rattle him. And he, he abled, like dudes liked him. Like for all of the different flaws that you might say, I was like, I think that'll work really well. Like if you can be in that pressure cooker environment with facing the public scrutiny and the owner that you you faced as the Cowboys and last that long and have the players like you, like you, those players, the players like J- Jason Garrett. And so I was like, I could totally see that working. Even though he's not the most electric personality and he's kind of boring, I could see that working with Stanford kids. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying he definitely would have been a He's failure. an Ivy League guy too, right? He was from Princeton? Princeton, yeah. So, so I that, thought he had some egghead. I thought he it had all some comes egg, back to that, doesn't I it? I thought he had egghead cred. <laughs> <laughs> well, Troy Taylor went to Berkeley. Yeah, but that's different, man. Berkeley's not even... Like, Berkeley... <laughs> that doesn't mean you could... That actually might be a demerit when it comes to dealing with Stanford kids. Stanford kids and Cal kids couldn't be more different. Like they're the same academic like caliber, but they're entirely different species. Yeah. Um, so Troy Taylor, oh, Washington fans know him as Jake Browning's high school coach. Exactly. Uh, he he runs a very exciting, creative brand of of offense. I thought he did a great job at Sacramento State, which is not, I don't think, an easy place to win multiple Big Sky titles at, and he, he did that. Uh, had them in the 
in the 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 FCS semifinals this year. So I like he's he's climbed the ladder. He went from Folsom High School to Eastern Washington for for just one year, I think, working with Bo Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Uh, then two years as offensive coordinator at Utah, and I, that didn't go particularly well. No. They dealt they dealt with a ton of injuries. He was their OC uh, the year that Washington beat them in the the Pac-12 championship game, the the ten to three game. Uh, which, to be fair, Utah was starting its backup quarterback. But yeah, he I, left Utah, and I think it was a situation where Utah fans were kind of like, okay, this that's fine, you know. Um, but got the head coaching job at Sacramento State, and I think he's what one a couple big sky titles, three big sky. So he's won three out of the last four big sky titles. Um, the last three non COVID years, in fact. Uh, and you know, I, I think he, I think he'll recruit well, um, from Stanford. I, you know, I don't know that, that he'd be like the most dynamite recruiter ever as a head coach at some other power five schools, but like, I think his approach and his values fit there. Um, he's got the, he's, you know, he's got, he was Cal's all time leading passer until Jared Goff broke all of his records. So he's got the playing pedigree. He's worked with quarterbacks forever. Like he coached Jake Browning in high school, but he was, he was training him from like age 10. And I'm pretty sure he worked with other guys too in the, um, I guess, what, what, what would you call that? The Sacramento region? What's, what's the name for that region? Yeah. It's really just sacramento because it's not like there's san joaquin valley it's not it's northern california but it's not like redding and up there yeah it's sacramento river valley so i I think he brings a lot to the table um be interesting to see how he fills out his staff i know he hired uh tyler osborne as their receivers coach he was a ga at washington under chris peterson and and uh was the receivers coach at sacramento state so um, I think, I think there's been, you know, some of his better players enter the portal. Maybe they'll end up at, at Stanford. It sounds like they're going to have the ability to take at least a couple of portal guys. You can't flip the roster there like you can at USC for academic reasons, but, um, I don't know. I, I think they could have done a lot worse. I think Stanford is a really tough, tough job. Like we've talked about in in the modern landscape with NIL and everything. Um, we'll see what kind of roster they put together. You know, I think he said that every player on the team had an earnest invitation to return. Uh, I think doing the opposite would be quite silly because then, then who's going to play for you? Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I think they could have done a lot worse. My, and some of this goes to sort of my bias about Big Sky and 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 just FCS football in general. Stanford to me has always been about like when they've been their best, it's when they're physical and disciplined like that. That's the and and Troy Taylor strikes me as someone who is about the creativity of the passing game and that he is able to sort of do things in space and it does sort of rely on the quarterback. I didn't think he fit well with Kyle Whittingham, who I think has a very specific style of football he wants to play. And I looked at it as like the things that Troy Taylor does well weren't necessarily conducive to the way that Kyle Whittingham wants his his team to play. That was but that's I did not not with a fine tooth comb. I I generally think that Utah reflects Kyle Whittingham more than it does any of its assistants. Um so I was surprised at that. I was like, huh and 
and maybe you can like like look you they've been able to get some really good quarterbacks at Stanford like all all of those different things and and maybe that is the the way to accentuate that is to get a guy that builds the game around the quarterback which is not how David Shaw or even Jim Harbaugh even with the quarterback talent they had built those teams like those those teams were built about I really think revolving around strength on the offensive line creativity in the run blocking and and they they had a different run game than anybody else had in the conference and they they beat the crap out of people and it doesn't seem like that went in this direction see i kind of i kind of think they need to change with the times though yeah you know and they they tried to like toward the end of David Shaw's tenure, like you did. There were all kinds of stories written about like, whoa, Stanford throwing the ball this much, what you know? <laughs> and they had these big receivers, and you know, Tanner McKee was a guy who got talked about a lot before the season as being an NFL guy. I don't know what the what the vibe on him on him is now that way, but yeah, I don't know. I it's uh, I think the days of being able to line up with three tight ends and and just bash people and and win that way might be uh, might be coming to an end, although. I do think there has there's been a recognition like receding from some of the hardcore air raid principles that you know Lincoln Lincoln Riley and and folks who have kind of evolved that system you know came to the conclusion a number of years ago that you do have to be able to run the ball and be physical. So it's it's not like it's just throw 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 everywhere, but I'm interested to see yeah, I'm interested to see if he, if he takes the same sort of creativity to Stanford and you know what the you know we talk about Washington as an appealing destination for transfer quarterbacks because of what Kalen DeBoer and, and Ryan Grubb accomplished this year. You know, let's see how how does Troy Taylor's name kind of ring out in that market. That's very fair. Early returns on Dion's tenure, man. It's going to be exciting up there. Yeah, he he got his first uh, big time flip. Dylan Edwards, running back from Derby, Kansas, was committed to Notre Dame. Now committed to Colorado. It's going to be funny to watch what happens up there. I mean they're they're gonna they're gonna have some talent pretty quickly. Like there's just no doubt about that. And Dion, it, it's funny because I've they're still airing some of the Jackson State um, footage. I mean he runs his team. I don't know if people know. Like he runs his team like a media company. Like everything's on tape. Like everything's broadcast. It's mm-hmm. gonna be it's gonna be wild to see the one school in the conference that goes in that direction where it's going to be wide open and 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 because all other college football coaches are so paranoid like they're they're so and it seems like Kalen DeBoer's more honest than most other guys and not as con- control freaky and you even mentioned how they'll let you talk to players that other programs would keep off like he seems like He's not about like I need to control every little morsel of information, but even Ideon is a whole different level. Yeah, um, they got to be significantly better next year, right? Like just just having his kid in there playing quarterback is going to change their fortunes overnight. Yeah, like that's the most important thing. Dude, do you do you listen to Bomani uh, Bomani Jones podcasts? I don't know. Um, so Bomani's one of my favorite people in media. Like I love Bomani. Um and he's he's been pretty hard. Like Bomani went to an HBCU and from the beginning with Dion going to Jackson State, he was like this is about Dion. Like and that's fine, but he's selling a bill of gold goods by saying like God called him to go and save HBCU football. Like this is about Dion. And so as Dion then proved that to be like that is a very accurate synopsis of what happened um 
Dion brought a huge amount of attention to Jackson State. And I think a lot of people will say that the overall impact of, of him in the SWAC is positive. Like it's it, it it's raised the, the attention level and and better players. Like it's been good for everybody. But he he, he the person it helped most is Deion Sanders, who's now a head coach at in a power five conference. And <laughs> Bomani was talking about at that press conference where Dion referenced his son coming there and saying, that's your quarterback. He's got to earn it, but that's your quarterback. And Bomani was like, how do you think he feels about that? Because like, he can play. And Jackson yeah. State's probably really fun. And he's now in Boulder. Like, And it's not that that's not a great opportunity and not all of those different things. <laughs> it's like, But Dion might be a little more excited about this opportunity than his son is. I mean, I don't know. He he won the Jerry Rice Award, right? As mm-hmm. the the best freshman in FCS. Yep. Was that was that last year? Was that this year? Uh I think that was I think that was this year. Um I, so he he can play. Yes. Like, oh, there's no he, doubt about that. And he's an instant upgrade for them. I don't know. Like if you're if you're him, you're you're obviously you're going to play for your dad. You're going to go wherever your dad goes. Um Aren't you excited about the chance to to show this at the Power Five level, and especially, I mean, shoot, if he's looked at at the defensive numbers in the Pac-12 this year and the offensive numbers in the Pac-12 this year, like, if I'm him, I'm thinking, oh yeah, like, get me a couple of receivers. Look at what look at what Jed Fish did at Arizona this year. Mm-hmm. They were one and eleven. They were non-competitive. They were terrible. Went out and got Jaden Delora, Jacob Cowing, Dorian Singer, and. Tetero and McMillan comes in as a freshman. That's four guys. And they still went five and seven. They weren't a bowl team. They were deeply flawed defensively. But with four guys, they completely changed the fortune of their offense. They were, you know, they they had they had two thousand yard receivers. They had Dorian Singer, I think, led the conference in in receiving yards, or maybe it was Cowing. But, you know, overnight they've got this explosive passing game. Why can't Colorado do the same thing? They've they've already got the hardest part, right? They've got the quarterback. Go out and get a couple more skill guys, you know? And, and like, I think those guys are going to come, right? Like, it's Dion, it's Colorado. You're already seeing guys talking about wanting to visit there. And um, that's going to – so I, I've, I've been thinking, like, you know, guys who take all five of their official visits aren't necessarily super interested in every school, mm-hmm. right? Colorado is going to have to like fend off every top recruit who me pretty much knows he wants to go to Georgia, pretty much knows he wants to go to Alabama or wherever, but like that he wants to go see what Prime's doing. I want to go see what's, what's up in Boulder. (laughs) Oh, it's funny. Uh, Shadur Sanders, uh, did, it was the Jerry Rice award was last year. So this was his, his his second season. I think Bomani's point wasn't that, Oh, it's going to be tougher for him in the PAC 12 or it's not. I think it's a lot of pressure. I, I think it was, it might be more fun for him to be the man at Jackson State as opposed to being the man at Boulder, where the f- the football team has not been the biggest deal. And maybe it will be again, and it's certainly like they they had it rocking in the 90s, but it's been a long time since Colorado's been a meaningful destination for college football. And it is... It is a smaller town, and it's got its own Boulder vibe. So I think that was, in general, the... Uh, I, I think it's going to... Like, look, 
I think they're going to have a huge amount of attention. I think it's great for the Pac-12 that Deion Sanders is the head coach. I'm glad that he's got that job. I think it's going to be awesome to watch. But it is going to be funny to see like exactly... It's possible Deion Sanders is going to be a bigger story nationally than he is in Boulder. Like It's possible that people are going to pay more attention to him what's happening across the country as opposed to how the actual appetite is for it in Boulder and and just Denver in general. There is not a single other thing that Colorado could have done to get people talking about them more overnight. 100%. Like, Like it's a home run. I I almost kind of think it doesn't matter if he wins there. Oh, I I, I agree. what they needed right now. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think you're 100. It doesn't matter if he wins there. Like this is, that is... There's no hire that they could have made that would be better than this. Like, none. Like, I, Pete Carroll wouldn't make a bigger impact or change than, than Deion Sanders is going to make because of how he approaches this. What if Colorado had hired Pete Carroll? That would have been something. <laughs> He's really, really fired up. We, great great talk with Ralphie and everything. And, and it's really uh, cool. It's just really cool stuff going on there. I, we should acknowledge... The passing of of Mike Leach, yeah. his his affection for Ralphie, and how much Mike Leach respected and admired Ralphie as a mascot was emblematic of like the truly genuine, unique, and earnest like approach that Leach had to just life in general. Like I could listen to him talk about Ralphie for an hour. I, I think I might have missed that one. I just googled it here. I see from from 2018. Was that during his um his mascot it, soliloquy? No, it wasn't the mascot battle. It was a different one of talking about having. Do they still have the live buffalo? Oh yeah. So talking about the live buffalo and how many people you actually need to to manage it and and how how fearsome and intimidating the buffalo itself is. Um, that and kind of that it's in general like underappreciated. Like just how awesome Ralphie is. Um, the the one where he broke down the Pac-12 mascots was, I think he fixated in that time on the Sun Devils and how you kind of didn't quite know how to combat that because they've got some extracurricular stuff going on. Like, what's a Sun Devil capable of? Like, do you need an exorcist? Like, what all do, do goes into to counterbalancing it? Um, it was it was it was it was very funny, and he kind of moved from from uh from from school to school but like his feelings about ralphie were 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 fantastic so i i started at the spokesman review in january of 2012 uh just a couple months after he had been hired and i don't think i had an appreciation at the time for for just how seismic the shift that he brought to washington state football was going to be um that he he took that program from they'd gone nine and forty under Paul Wolf and were just thoroughly non competitive against most teams they played and they built it back a little bit. They were they were better that last year in twenty eleven. Couple breaks away from winning a couple more games and making it to a bowl game. But um Mike Leach just completely changed the expectations for Washington State football. And it didn't happen overnight. That that first year was really rough and 
you know, I I think he, he rubbed people the wrong way that first season with the way he talked about players. And like, obviously, that was kind of a theme throughout his career. Um, it's who he was. And mm-hmm. he didn't apologize for it. And, and he wasn't changing. But the he made it so that like, a seven and five season at Washington state is just like, well, okay. You know, whereas before you go seven and five, you're feeling pretty good about things. You know, you're feeling like that's usually, that's usually a step forward. Like Washington state has had successful head coaches who have had multiple losing seasons and that was okay. Right. Where, I mean, he, he took it to a point where nobody was surprised when they contended. Nobody was surprised when, you know, their quarterback threw for, 400 plus yards in every game and led the country in passing and they're churning out all these receivers who maybe they had other power five offers maybe they just had one or two but boom they're they're you know big time in college and they're putting up huge numbers and they're fun to watch and he he changed washington state football um didn't quite get to the you know the pinnacle was was so close to winning a a couple division titles there and and it didn't happen but he he to to look at the condition the program was in to where it is now and not even just the product on the field, but you know, the, his hire coincided with, with these great renovations and they built a new football operations facility and a premium seating structure and um, everything about his tenure there kind of pulled Washington state into the 21st century, made them a player um, and made them a lot of fun. You know, like I, when, when um, I think it was Andy Staples at the athletic did a breakdown of, all of the non SEC Big Ten schools and, and what their TV viewership was, the the big conclusion was it from it from it was wow look at where Washington State is look at how many people watch Washington State games you wouldn't have guessed they'd have been that high well I think Mike Leach was a a big factor in that and we, we know how stubborn he was with his own version of the air raid you know he it was it was tried and true and to him you know he didn't need to make any tweaks or any adjustments and. You know, maybe uh, you can wonder what could have been if he did. But man, the the impact he had on the game of football. You know, I, I, how many coaches are there who who had a greater one? You know, overall at all at all levels. And he would kind of sit back and joke sometimes about like, well, people ask, would the air raid work in the NFL? And he's like, well, do you watch the NFL? You know, people aren't calling it the air raid and they're not throwing it every down, but it's it's a lot of the same principles. You can argue that there's nobody that's had a bigger impact on the way college football specifically and 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 to some extent in the NFL is played right now than Mike Leach over the past 20 years because what Leach did and the way that he implemented an offense that mitigated and in some cases kind of counterbalanced the traditional strength of the the heavyweight programs who simply stocked up so much beef on the offensive and defensive lines that you they had a prohibitive advantage and leach didn't level the playing field but he mitigated that disadvantage that schools had because of how he spread things out and how he was able to develop a passing game that was consistent enough to move the ball without running it like that in my mind like that is and what he did at texas tech like i have a long rant about how i think that one of the most important results regular season results in college football history was texas tech's victory over texas in the game where michael crabtree Mm -hmm. kind of spins out of that tackle and goes running down the sideline and it was this this sort of because 
Texas Tech was full of kids who Texas would not recruit. Like that's that's he was Mike Leach was at a very very football rich state, and he was like the sixth or seventh tier option, and he was able to get kids that fit the style of football that he wanted, where you could spread the game out, create a regular, consistent, positive offensive gain by understanding spacing and 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 essentially sort of making up for the fact that you didn't have big enough players to protect the big guys that were going to be chasing after you. And it changed the way college football's played. Like it it, it, it it absolutely did to the point where you now see those programs that used to be those like Ohio State would never run the kind of offense that Ryan Day runs if it wasn't for Mike Leach. Like he, it just it just wouldn't. And so you saw the premier programs say like, "Oh, instead of using our pedigree to get all of these big dudes and and have this punishing ground game, we're going to get some some athletes and we're going to throw the ball more often." And it's it it really was that, and it, it it created more parity. Like it's it's not like it it upended the entire power structure of college football. It changed the way the games played. It changed the number of upsets we see. And 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 Leach was absolutely right about the impact on the NFL. Like absolutely right. Look no further than Bill Belichick and Tom Brady and the Patriots and the kind of receivers that caught started catching 115 and 120 passes. Like one of them was Wes Welker, who literally came from 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 Leach's offense. Like they started doing some of those same concepts to get easy, predictable pr- completions without having with, with without risking the sort of turnovers that were traditionally associated with the passing offense. When we do our state of the program stories every year, and I've written Washington State's a couple times, a section of it is, hey, how have they recruited over the last four classes? And where where is their recruiting ranked, you know, within the conference and nationally? And with Washington State under Mike Leach, it was always like, well, they're either last or 11th in the conference again, and they're like toward the bottom of the Power Five again. Uh, but we know it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Like, but it's been proven that it just doesn't matter. Like, you just know he's he's going to bang seven to nine wins out of this team one way or another if they lose out on this kid to this school they'll just find another guy in the same physical mold who didn't have any offers and and he'll he'll plug in um he was really his was a program at washington state that was really like me i don't know what you want to call it star proof or recruiting rankings proof it just didn't it didn't matter where they finished it didn't matter whether the guys they were running out there were were star recruits or not now there were a couple of, you know, bedrock guys early in his in his career that were important gets for them that helped change the program. Gabe Marks comes to mind, wound up setting the Pac-12 record in receptions, and um, he was a four-star guy. He had some other offers. Um, might have even been looking at UCLA for a time, I forget. But getting him was big and, you know, uh, got a couple four-star quarterbacks, and that was kind of the, the interesting thing too. And he would just kind of make quarterback work. You know, Anthony Gordon was a – was a junior college guy might have come there as a walk on and you know through forty eight touchdown passes or whatever his senior year and they just uh they just kind of made it work personnel wise so it was really a a fascinating program to monitor over the years and um interesting guy interesting guy to be around especially at that at that point in my career um you know i i didn't always love the way that that he he could talk to people sometimes 
um, but you knew you knew that was him. Yeah, you knew who he was, and and you knew what you were going to get. And um, I think his his curiosity was very genuine. You know, that guy could ask questions about everything he was seeing all day long. And you know, I think as a I think that was you know that was a big reason why he endeared himself to the media so much was because you know we we're supposed to be very curious people and and we're supposed to be the ones asking questions and you know if you show for for a college football coach to show even a modicum of interest in something that's not literally you know what do I have to do in the next 10 seconds so we win our next football game that's rare in this business and so um yeah, he was a he was one of one for sure the the uniqueness is something I, I've I've actually thought a lot about this recently. Some of it with the Richard Sherman kind of this week being stubborn again and 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 cut, having that interview cut short on the the radio station seven ten Seattle Sports where I used to work. We we tend to want people to behave according to a certain code of conduct, right? Like that that's like there's a way that you should act as someone who is a public figure in professional or college big time college athletics. And there's sort of this sense that you shouldn't be be different. And and one of the things that that conformity produces is that you have a lot of people who do things sort of hide who they really are because you don't want to get criticized about it. Like because Leach, I I was part of a, a radio interview with him that went sideways with Jim Moore. And I remember this. Yeah. Like where Jim, Jim, Jim. I think it was his third year because his third year they t- they take a step back, like they they kind of there was there was a point where it had not gone well and and there was questions about how he treated players and Jim basically said I I just wonder if that team will run through a wall for you and Leach responded that you're agenda driven and whatever you have to write and it got a little awkward and then it got a little more awkward because Leach suggested that perhaps the owl who was living in his backyard might fly off with Jim's new puppy Willie um which <laughs> is a terrible i mean he didn't threaten the dog he just wondered if perhaps the owl might fly off with the dog and Jim's like oh you mean the owl with big baseball sized eyes and Leach is like that's the one like i didn't like what you said where i how how Leach treated people. I thought he could be really boorish to reporters. And I know that doesn't matter to most people, but they're trying to cover a team and serve a readership that's very interested in Mike Leach's team. And he just didn't like what he was being asked about that team. Like he wanted to kind of control that. I think there are legitimate questions about how he treated players. Um, that was like, he had a certain style of, not only talking about them, but what he asked them to do. Like, and and then how he was a very open supporter of Donald Trump. For, for me, like, I politically disagree with that. I think there, there is... But the thing that I... And I even had ended up writing a column about it. Like, Leach didn't hide any of that stuff. And there are so many people that sort of aren't willing to be honest because they know it will rub someone the wrong way. I won't say who I'm for politically because that's going to alienate a certain number of of people that might otherwise support me, 
right? Like, I'm not going to tell you if if you like Donald Trump, I'm not going to tell you because that'll make the libs mad. Or I'm not going to say that I like Joe Biden because there are a significant number of conservatives who hate them. And Leach just didn't care about that part. And and there's something very, very admirable in that. And it doesn't mean that there's no consequences for those sort of decisions. Or I'm saying like, hey, you can't judge anybody for. But on the whole, like, I really liked Mike Leach. Like, I really liked him. And some of that is because of sort of the confidence he had in what he was doing, the belief he had in his own vision, and the fact that the guy did change college football without much more than the conviction that we can do it this way. Like, that's awesome. Like I, and so like, on the whole, like, I don't, I don't agree with everything Mike did. And, and don't think that like, oh my gosh, he's the perfect person. But we've gotten into this point, and this is where I threaten to get up on a soapbox and feel, where it's like, they're either the perfect person and you love everything about them and this person is doing everything right to, okay, they've done three things I don't agree with and now I can't support them at all. And that is completely unrealistic in how the world actually works. Like you have to be, like everybody's flawed. And everybody makes mistakes and everybody does things deliberately that probably they shouldn't, <laughs> like, whether it's because they, they've, they've got a, a, a mistaken way of thinking or they just don't care enough to act differently. But it doesn't mean that someone who does those things should be summarily discounted. So I always said that, like, I, I don't think it was a good thing that Mike Leach introduced Donald Trump at, at, at rallies. But I like the fact that he did it because he was him. Right. Like there's there's something and that's that's what I will always think about 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 Mike Leach is that I'm glad he was in this world and I'm glad that I got to experience and and see sort of his legacy. And it's a less interesting place now that he's gone. I thought that uh, Sally, (coughs) excuse me, Sally Jenkins at The Washington Post had a really good line where she said that Leach recognized how unserious his profession was where most college football coaches want to make it like it's mm-hmm. the most serious thing in the world, you know? And like, it, I think the way that the way that he operated his program was ran contradictory to that at, at times. But I, I do think he kind of, it, it was like he was um, just sort of amused by the spectacle of everything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, wait, so I'm going to, I'm going to stand up here at this microphone and you guys in a really serious tone are going to ask me all these questions about football and you know I'm not going to answer any of them and I'm going to tell you I'm not going to talk about injuries and um a lot of those things could be very frustrating um as especially as a reporter who is just trying to tell people, you know, what they what they want to know about their team but like you you come to first of all except that even the coaches who answer those sort of questions earnestly really aren't giving you a whole lot nope. anyway and um that the uh the the character that he was was more interesting to your readers than anything he might tell you about why they handled the the third down call the way that you know why why they went forward on fourth down in the fourth quarter or whatever so you kind of i think came to be you came to to see the um the spectacle of everything a little bit differently he, and it, you know, in a way, in a way, it it sort of it sort of brought me into a a different perspective on how you cover college football. Oh, interesting. You know? How so? Well, just that 
you get to understand what it is that people actually want to read, what's actually interesting. Um, like I watched, there was after a practice one day, you know, and, and we asked our typical, whatever, seven minute scrum and then Dale Grummert. I don't know if people are familiar with Dale Grummert, one of the most underrated writers on the planet, uh, longtime WSU football writer for the Lewiston Tribune and Dale's, you know, older guy, long, thin, uh, gray hair, super skinny, wore, you know, black jeans and black t-shirts and just kind of a, a different character, really good guy, really nice guy. And he just, he asked Mike Leach one question about, you grew up in Cody, Wyoming. Isn't Jackson Pollock from Cody, Wyoming? And, oh yeah, Jackson Pollock. He, and Leach launches into this whole story about how big of a Jackson Pollock fan he was and how he'd set up um, canvases in his garage and do his own Jackson Pollocks and he'd invite the neighborhood kids to come watch him and make their own and all this stuff. And it, it's just like moments like that where you're like, you know, this is, this is what's interesting about this guy. And like, this is what's interesting about the sport that there are characters and, you know, people don't, don't have to conform to the, the, the press conference box that, that we all think is so important. Um, with that said, I still did need to re- report football stuff every now and then. And so <laughs> you know, that could be a, that could be a little bit frustrating, but you, you know, you sort of knew the game. Yeah. So you telling that story, that's awesome. And I'm way more interested in Mike Leach's uh, sort of interactions and observations of Jackson Pollock than I am anything that might have happened that day at Cougar football practice. Uh, so I, I appreciate your 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 radar going up and understanding. Like that's great. The moment that I decided I needed to do something else um, when I was I was still a, a reporter at the Seattle Times and I was covering the Seahawks and it was actually like that. Now I. Th- I think they still have two people that do it. Like at that time it was just me and there was a blog. Like it was, it was a really unwieldy job. But the point when I recognized like, okay, I need to do something else was when I, I was spending most of the open locker room time talking to, I think it was four or five offensive linemen. And then I would also go over to the wide receivers, but I wasn't, actually doing news reporting because I had covered that team long enough that I knew, okay, this linebacker's stepping in for this injured linebacker and you go over and ask the, 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 the guy who's going to play about what his emotions are and you try to find some sort of unique little tidbit or anecdote to introduce the opportunity he's stepping forward, but it's the next man up story that gets written and I was I was becoming so un, uninterested in those that I was in danger of starting to miss those because like that's how you actually have to cover that like there's enough people that are interested in the day to day machinations of who's going to play that weekend that me being bored with that and wanting to hear stories from these guys about what their college coaches were like was going to become a liability for my own coverage and I was just like I. I, I've got it. And for me, it was kind of a signal. And that ended up kind of starting a chain of dominoes that led to me going and hosting radio full time a few months later. But it's it's very it's very interesting. Oh, the other thing that happened. Um, 2012 Seahawks playoffs. I knew that they had not won a road game in 
since 1983. So it had been 30 years since they'd won a road game. And they go on the road to play the, the Washington Epithets. And so I knew that the last time they'd won a road game, their road trip had got derailed because there was something wrong with the plane. And they'd ended up sort of spending the afternoon at a SeaTac airport and going doing their walk through there. They land at like midnight in Miami. They play the next day at noon. They like the whole travel is is screwed up because of this plane thing. And they go out and they beat the Dolphins who were these huge favorites. And it was so I was like, okay, that's a pretty good little feature story. And so I called Joe Nash. I tried to call. I'm pretty sure Knox was still alive. I tried to call Knox, but couldn't get a hold of him. I talked to a couple other people. And and so I, I write the story about it. And like as I'm sitting down to write it, I'm like, I better look and check and see if I've written about this before. Like I didn't think I had. And I looked, and two years earlier, I wrote the exact freaking story. <laughs> like I'd written that. And they were. it was when after the Beast Quake game, and they were going to play at Chicago. And, and in that story, I actually had gotten a hold of Knox. <laughs> And so I read it and I'm like, I have no memory of writing this. I'm like, I'm repeating stuff that I, 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 I was going to write the same story different, like the same version of it, like even the same concept. And I hadn't even done as good a job because I hadn't got a hold of Knox. Scared the crap out of me, Christian. So that, not to bore people with, with insider journalism stuff, but that opens up a different conversation for me about like, we, I feel like sometimes we operate under this assumption that if we wrote one story on a subject eight years ago, every single person who follows us on Twitter or in my case is subscribed to the athletic or whatever saw it and knows about it and already knows it and will instantly recognize if I write anything even remotely similar that, wait a second, you wrote about this for the Tacoma news Tribune back in 2014, didn't you? And I do think that there's some license to tap into that a little bit. Yes. Well, I my, I wrote about this this long ago, but I didn't write about it for this audience. And you know, it I I'd like to think I'm a better writer and reporter than I was eight years ago. You know, <laughs> like I think everyone would like to think that in their profession that they've they've matured and evolved and improved. So maybe it'd be better now. You know, maybe your 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 road playoff uh, drought story would have been better two years later. No, because I hadn't even gotten knocks on the phone. <laughs> I'd clearly done a better job reporting it the first time. I was. Well, mail- you talked talk to him once. You could guess what he would have said. <laughs> it's really funny though. I mean, it's because like what you say is true. Like it's. Like y- your your body of knowledge is is part of the asset that you bring to the job. It's not that like I am going to bring all new, fresh information. Like the body of knowledge is part of it, but it is it is a funny. It's it scared the crap out of me. Like honestly, like I, I don't think I've ever had anything professionally that scared me as much as that did. Where I was just like, I'm just going to become this piece of repeating crap who's like the old man telling the stories everybody's heard before. Mine, even when it's not the same subject, I do, like, I, I do kind of wonder sometimes, am I, am I falling into just writing the same story over and over again? You know, even if it's a, this today, it was about, you know, a, a freshman receiver and tomorrow it's about, you know, the defensive line coach or whatever, but it's, it's the same story, you know? Yeah. I, I talked to him and I talked to his high school coach and I talked to this and, you know, like I, said, I do think like you... It, it, you do kind of run the the risk of falling into that rut of like hmm, this is a different subject and a different team and a different time, but like this feels like a million other stories that I've already written and not not having to fill the hole of a daily newspaper helps certainly yeah, yeah. Uh, and writing less often helps but yeah that's I think I think any 
any sports writer, especially any beat writer, is always combating that. It's a very funny, it's a funny occupation. It is. It is. It's weird what we do. Have you found that nobody, like, you can't adequately explain to someone who doesn't already have, like, some understanding of how sports journalism works, like, what we do and what our job is? Yeah. It's difficult. I've found this especially over the past year because... I mean, I think everybody, I, I don't have a full-time job. Like I have, I'm piecing together a couple of different things that I'm doing. So I'm constantly talking to people who ask me what I'm doing now and what I did before. And yeah, I don't, I don't think people that aren't in sports journalism understand exactly what sports journalism is. And there's in some cases that like I've learned that I don't understand the world outside of sports journalism nearly as well as I thought I did. It is. It's strange because people will assume that you know or are friends with or that you have no real personal relationship with. Like explaining the relationship that you have as a reporter with players and coaches that you cover is something that people do not get at all. Where I'm like, we're not friends. Like there's there's a tension that is inherent in that relationship in that they know I want more information than they want me to have. But it's not like it's adversarial either. Like we talk to each other all the time. Like sometimes it gets adversarial, but for the most part, there's this shared understanding of of the cat and mouse nature of, of the relationship that doesn't need to be explained. Um, and people... Yeah, I think that's really hard for people to understand exactly how it works. Do you get free tickets to the game? <laughs> that's my which, like, in it, technically, yes, yeah, right, yeah, we are granted free admission, yeah, yeah. Or it's like, oh, were they really disappointed after the game? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure they were. Like, I don't, I don't particularly care. Like, I kind of feel bad for them, but it's, I'm sorry they lost. Like, that's. Like there's one year I'm like, I'm not. I was ready to be done. <laughs> Cancun, baby. <laughs> and that's I the last like, thing any of those dudes want to hear. Like, Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like this tangent we've gone on is, is the uh, most fitting Mike Leach tribute there could be. Because <laughs> see, like this is, he, he would be the one still, still sticking with us through this conversation. You know, a lot of people are going to turn this off. I don't care about this. Yeah. Not talking about football. No, you're Leach right. would be the one. No, I want to hear I want to hear more about this. Yeah. He did. There was one of the clips that I saw that surfaced of him was a reporter asking him for advice about getting married. And it was clearly, I mean, an appeal and and Leach has always been funny about relationships. Um and he starts but Leach took it to a like a lope. And she was kind of like, okay. That was I'll give coming him. off the field this yeah. last season. Yeah. yeah. And and she's like, okay, I'll give him that advice. And he was like, I'm not done talking about this. Like, seriously, elope. I've told every one of my daughters, whatever I'm going to pay for your wedding, I'll pay you $10,000 more if you'd elope. And he goes, and I do it. And none of them have taken me up on it. And you're like, she, she, it was very sweet and very funny. Like, there's nothing, but it was clear that, like, he had taken it to a more serious level. <laughs> she was like, this would be a funny little anecdote. And he's like, no, seriously, elope. <laughs> My wife has two sisters, and I, I believe her parents communicated to her early on, like, hey, we're we're going to give each of you the same amount of money. And, like, well, you know, understand, we will give you the money 
you know, whether you have a wedding or not. So like there was, there was a thought of like, mm, we could do, we could do a nice little elopement, you know, for, and, and not incur like any more cost. But yeah, we did, we didn't, we had the wedding. Yeah. It was fun. It was a ton of, I mean, it's one of the, one of the most like fun. It basically, if you do a wedding, right, it's just a really fun party, you know? So I hope I don't get in trouble for this, but, um, Uh-oh. my, my wife, like her parents did the exact same thing of like her brother got married first. So she had had the same amount of of resources that were that were allocated to her. And our we got we got married at City Hall. Um, I always get I always get in trouble about it. It might have been the county courthouse because I always say it wrong. So I'm going to assume it was the county courthouse. And then we had a reception at the Alki bathhouse. And it was like it was really it was it was a really fun party, but it was not a catered event at a hotel ballroom and then some of those resources not all of them but some of those resources went into the purchase of a baby grand piano that my wife played that we called chicken dinner <laughs> because it was the it was the chicken dinner we didn't serve our our reception guests <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good chicken or fish yeah no nope. piano no we got takeout <laughs> <laughs> really good takeout from one of our favorite uh international district from the id in seattle but takeout uh should we get together next week to pick some bowl games yeah i'd like to do that i'd like to do that when do you go All to right. san antonio uh, i fly on the 27th okay. so it's gonna be a fairly short trip surgical strike the river walk's fun man san antonio's underrated town yeah i'm looking forward to it uh glad that uh i'm not you know glad that that i'm not paying for my own flight yeah. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> to the, I've never seen prices gouged like that. Yeah, it's pretty. It's those, crazy. Those are tough. Like when you when you go to, I I don't, I should check. Does Alaska even fly direct? If they did, they only had one flight a day and they maybe. They do, yeah. Yeah. I'm flying but, direct there. Yeah, but that's, those are, those are tough. And yeah, the gouging uh, absolutely occurs. Well, we'll, uh, we'll let you know what we think of how the Huskies match up with, uh, with Steve Sarkeesian and the Texas Longhorns. Uh, We'll talk to you next week. Take care until then.